Hey, Soraya. Hey, Jeff. How you doing? I'm doing good. So we just finished our call with the Telltale Hearts. And it's funny because I did not expect that we were going to have all five members of the band. In fact, uh, when we start this episode, there's only four of the guys. And they had multiple band members. But uh, the band members that we're talking to today with Ray, uh, Mike, David, Bill, and Eric were the band that... Uh, the members of the band that recorded the couple albums that are out there, but we didn't think that Bill was going to be able to participate. But as you all hear, he pops in. He pops in and makes quite, just makes a splash, which is awesome. Yeah. 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 So I, hopefully you guys enjoy this. Uh, the next part of our series talking about Vox recording artists. Um, we've talked about the Pandoras, talked about the things. So up next, Here's our conversation with the Telltale Hearts. Enjoy. Hi, this is Soraya. And this is Jeff. Our podcast is called Paisley Stage Raspberry and Rhyme. A podcast where the two of us play music that we like and share anecdotes and background about the tunes. We hope you'll join our conversation. And without further ado, agrubiar. Let's get groovy. On today's episode, we're continuing our mini-series covering Vox recording artists. Soraya, we've had the Pandoras on, we've had the Things on, um, we're going to have the Steps on here shortly, but today we're covering a band that, that comes from an area that's closer to where I'm from for a change, Soraya. <laughs> it's not Los Angeles. So we got San Diego-based band, the Telltale Hearts, and, and you know I'm a huge fan of these guys, Soraya, so I'm yes, very excited. So today on the call, we've got the lead vocalist and and I call you a percussionist. I don't know if maracas and tambourine qualify as a percussionist, but Ray, uh, Ray Brandis on the show. Don't forget the cowbell. Don't forget the cowbell. You can't forget the cowbell. <laughs> and I believe I used one of those uh, South American fish on, on a couple of songs as well. Oh, nice, nice. Um, I can't remember the name of it. But... Yeah, isn't it? A weedle. What is it, Soraya? A weedle. Oh, that's close to weedle. Brazilian fish. Yeah. <laughs> and then also we have bassist Mike Stacks. Mike, welcome to Paisley Stage Raspberry and Rhyme. Hey, nice to be here. And then also we have David Cloudin, drummer. Welcome, David. Good evening. And then Eric, I've, I've always pronounced your name Bacher, and I'm, I, I'm notorious for messing up names. Is Bacher the correct pronunciation for your last name? Oh, he's not. We don't hear him. Oh, I think we got... He's explaining Eric. that the correct pronunciation is <laughs> Okay, I'll leave that to Soraya. No, I'm just kidding. No, Bacher is right. Eric, we, we don't have your uh, microphone. We can't hear you. I wanted to welcome all of you guys, the Telltale Hearts, minus Bill Calhoun, who we tried to get in touch with, but we weren't able to. So Telltale Hearts, welcome to Paisley Stage Raspberry Rhyme. I'm super excited to have you guys on the show. Thank you. Thank you for Thank having us. So uh, for all of you, we have to be perfectly honest. We don't know a whole lot about the band's history, so we're really happy to have four of you on uh, to help us uh, fill in the gaps. From what we do know, Ray, Bill, and David uh, were previously in a band known as the Mystery Machine. Uh, Ray and David, can you talk to us a little bit about that band? Ray, that's, that's you. Well, the Mystery Machine, um, the entire band history is only about two months, three months, I think, tops. Um, 
Carl Rusk started the band, um, and then um, I was the singer, and we ha had David as drummer, Bill Calhoun as organist, and Mark Zadonowski, who was a former crawdaddy, was playing bass. And I think we learned, I think we only learned 13, 12, 13 songs, something like that, and then um, and we played them all at the three three gigs we had in, in, uh, in Southern California. We played once at headquarters. In San Diego, we played once in Orange County, and then once at the um, the Lhasa Club, I think, in 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 Los Angeles. Ray Brandis, Bill's here. Woo! Hey, hey. made it! Hey. Hey. Oh, right! Hey. I just happened to check my email five minutes ago, Ray, and I saw I'm, your message. So I really, here I am. Have, we can't see you though. You got? Have you got a camera? <laughs> um. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Uh, share screen. There he is. Let's try that. Hey, listen, I need to get a photograph. Great to see you guys. How you been? Awesome. You look good, Bill. Well, thanks. I'm uh, living in the great northern part of Nevada, and it's really hot and sunny right now. Is it like 120 there, or what? What's going on? Well, no, it's not like Las Vegas hot, but it's about 102 here. So it's pretty summery. I can still Las Vegas hot. <laughs> and are you guys all still in San Diego? <laughs> we are. Yeah. Wow. We're sharing an apartment. <laughs> <laughs> it's a new reality show. Oh, gosh. Well, I'm so glad I got invited. <laughs> so what's the deal? What are we all doing on the on the line here. Well, well Bill, we were waiting for you. All the questions oh, cool. are going to come to you. <laughs> oh, gosh. Well, actually, Bill, this is a good good point for you to jump in because um, I was having a little bit of trouble remembering details about the mystery machine other than we, we played three three gigs or so. And um, it was we, we were really inspired that summer by listening to a lot of folk, folk rock music um, by the L.A. sound. So we, you know, we, we played... Um, I don't think we played any birds songs, but we played we played all songs that were kind of birds inspired. Uh, twelve string. Yeah, there was. I think there was a little little twelve string going on then. Yeah. I mean, a little Rickenbacker action on on Carl's part. Historically, like you'd have to go back pretty far to tell the, the whole story because there's a lot of backstory to, to um, how the Mystery Machine formed. Uh, in my case, I was uh, in a punk rock band, and I mean like hardcore punk rock. I was the lead screamer of a punk band. And around 1982, the punk scene started to take a turn for the worst. Because prior to then, it had just been a bunch of like, you know, artsy, nerdy weirdos and misfits coming together and anything. You could do whatever you wanted in that scene. And, you know, you'd go one, one you'd see the Crawdaddies that were like this incredible R&B band. Then you'd see some, like a, a band playing like co complete art noise or another band playing power pop or whatever. I mean, it was just like, and I loved all of it. Um, but as in 1982, as the hardcore scene started to get more and more violent, I started to notice that the, the girls were leaving uh, the <laughs> punk scene. So you'd go to the shows and just be a bunch of uh, sweaty skinheads and stuff. And it was oh, disgusting. It did, the punk scene didn't smell as good anymore. And so um, I, I, but I noticed that the, uh, the shows that the Crawdaddies were playing were still fun. The music was still good. It was still exciting. And and Mike, at that time, when I was checking out the Crawdaddies uh, in 79 at the Skeleton Club and in, in 80 all over town, they, they just, they, they became my favorite band. 
and I started like not caring about the punk bands and wanting to just go see this R&B band. You know, they just seemed more rock and roll and more interesting and more fun and more, you know, and, and open to more people. And um, so, uh, so I want, I started uh, roadieing for the Crawdaddies. I would like carry equipment in for them so I could get into the shows. And, and then I figured it would be easier to get into the shows for free if I was in a band, because I'd already done that as a punk rocker. So I had to quickly learn an instrument. So I, I, I got a drum set, didn't know how to play. And I was talking to a friend of the Mystery Machine guys, which was this guy named Jerry Cornelius, who's a kind of interesting character in all of this, who you'll see doing the intro in German to our show that was just recently uncovered, the music, the, uh, the music machine show. So, uh, so Jerry, uh, I lied and told him I knew how to play drums. I'd never played drums. And so the, the Mystery Machine said, oh, well, we'll give him a tryout. And I went over to Carl's house. And um, I think at that time, the, 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 at the tryout, I think Ron Silva was there. I don't even know what it is. And he said, play a Bo Diddley beat. And I was like, what's that? <laughs> and, uh, and, so, <laughs> and he showed me. And I was like, I, I don't know if I can do that. And uh, then they were like, you can't play. What the fuck? Get out of here, kid. And then... <laughs> Uh, so I was humiliated and so I, I went and got a drum set and some headphones um, and started learning uh, like a, a slightly better cheap Japanese kit. And I mean, I was playing drums for probably four months when, when I persuaded, somehow persuaded Jerry to convince them that no, no, I've been practicing and I could, I could play a Bo Diddley beat now. And so uh, the Mystery Machine let me come and, and try out. And I still couldn't play, but for some reason, Ray and Carl and, and, and Bill, you guys were just like, okay, you're in, because I don't think Paul Carasola probably wanted to be like, you know, doing rifle drills or something rather than play. The guy was the original drummer. <laughs> so that's my entry into the Mystery Machine, which was also my whole entry into that world, you know? Oh, wow. And so Carl and I had been playing together for, in, in various bands for, for several, several years. Um, we knew Bill uh, from high school and Bill was also dating my sister, and Bill kind of took up the organ about the same time as well as David took up the drums. So um, for those two, at least, it was kind of a first first band experience. Um, and Well, first. I mean, first band, uh, uh, drummer, right, yeah. Um, yeah, but like I said, we played, I think we only played uh, uh, three gigs, um, and that was kind of coinciding with the time that the crawdaddings were falling apart. Um, and I, I'll let my I'll let Mike take it from here. Um, but Mike was actually hanging out with uh, with Bill and Carl and David and, and, and yeah, me. I lived at Carl's house, so I was there for that whole. I was kind of like the Mystery Machines roadie, you know. I <laughs> think I was at all four gigs. Yeah. Were you you were keeping us supplied in Lucky Lager? <laughs> probably not paying for it. I was probably opening. Uh, the, no, definitely not. On the bottle caps, though, that's that's what intrigued me, and that's what got me to stay hanging out with you guys in Presidio Park. So, Mike, how did you come to join the band as the bassist? <clears throat> well, I I started out in the Crawdaddies, so um, I came over from England, in fact, to join Crawdaddies on bass. I I was uh, I told this story so many times, but I was listening to John Peel's radio show one night, and I heard the, and he played a Crawdaddies. Uh, record and I couldn't believe that it was a band from then which was 1979 because they sounded like 1964 which is they sounded like bands that I liked like Pretty Things in the Yardbirds and uh, eventually I uh, I wrote them kind of a fan letter 
care of bumper records. And Greg Shaw forwarded it to Ron Silver, said, yeah, you should reply to this guy. He sounds very sincere. I saw that letter later. So Ron mm -hmm. replied, and uh, I'd mentioned in the letter that, that I, had, I play bass, and I've been trying to form a band to play that kind of music. And he, in his letter, he said, why don't you move to San Diego and, and come join the Crawdaddies, because our bass player's leaving. So, um, sort of, was that Martin? Yeah, Martin Mark was leaving. So, um, he didn't know it at the time. <laughs> I'm sure, yeah, I'm not sure. He may not have known. Uh, it, it took me a few months to uh, kind of uh, save up the money, but I, I just got out of high school. I didn't really want to go to college yet. So, I came over with like $200 in my pocket and a bass guitar and a three month tourist visa. And I've been here ever since. Wow. That was at the end of 1980. So they didn't build the wall that could stop me. <laughs> Thank God. Yeah. But anyway, uh, yeah, so I was in the Crawdaddies for, for a little while. And uh, by 1983, um, I think that was, I don't know. I, I was thinking the Crawdaddies had kind of jumped the shark a little bit. Um, I, they were doing very straight R&B and soul music. And uh, I... I wanted to still do more like that pretty things, Yardbird style music. Plus also I was really getting more and more into the American garage stuff, like the seeds and the 13 floor elevators, which they really didn't, didn't like at all. So I wanted to- Yeah, but if, if I can interject- What the hell going with those people? Well, you know, I, the, the way I remember it is it, Mike was really trying to drag them kicking and screaming into 1966. <laughs> And they were just, we're just not having it. They, they, I did they for were doing a while. They, 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 they changed the band name to the Howling Man. And we, we sort of, I think we had a little good run there, you know, where it was getting to be a little more 1966. And, you know, there was a, you know, but, but then they started, then they were like, oh no, we want to do this Dionne Warwick song. And, and uh, I was like, no, let's do this We The People song. And actually, <laughs> in the meantime, I met uh, Bill and Ray, and we'd, we had a little, few little side bands that we put together to just play at parties. And I was having way more fun hanging out with Ray and Bill than I was hanging out with the Crawdaddies. So uh, uh, eventually push came to shove, and I was going to quit, but they, they, uh, they fired me before the gig. I was going to quit after the gig. <laughs> I never heard that before. You were going to, you were going to get all four dollars from that. Yeah, well, show. I, was, I think I was, I think I was going to get fifty dollars or, or seventy-five dollars. It was a pretty good paying show. <laughs> and, and Bill, I remember Bill and I drove up for it. It was in L.A. and I got there and they were like, "Oh, you're out of the band." Oh my gosh! I totally we drove all the way up. Uh, and that was fine because by the time we got home, me and Bill had already said, okay, we're going to have the band with Ray. Yeah, I think we must have just gone to Tommy Burgers and headed back home after a while. Yeah, yeah. So we got back home, immediately called Ray, and, and we started forming the band. And that we, uh, David was a log logical choice because he'd been in the Mystery Machine, who had just broken up. And then. And you know, as, as, soon, as, as soon as I heard about this, I immediately thought of Eric because Eric and I went to school together and we met in, in like an English class where we were both like reading Charles Bukowski and Kerouac and shit like that. And not, not what we were, not what was on the requirement uh, list for the course, you know, and we bonded over literature, I think both and, and being, you know, kind of like weirdos and music nerds. And 
and I think Eric was the first guy that ever uh, introduced me to marijuana. <laughs> the first time I ever, <laughs> first time I ever smoked weed was um, like I was given a big box of Ritz crackers and put down in front of a Pink Floyd "Dark Side of the Moon" album, <laughs> and Eric and Carl Draney played that for me, and I was like, okay, this is some different shit. Uh, <laughs> it, it didn't, it didn't stick for a while, uh, but but anyway. Um, but Eric, uh, you know, I, I told him about the band and, and um, you know, and Eric was playing guitar and thought it would be interesting. Um, so, I, Eric, do you remember that? Uh, yeah, I, I do. Um, it was the, uh, actually, I think the first time I met Mike is when I went to Carl's house for my interview, which lasted about... It was about, an uh, interview? <laughs> yeah, less than about 45 seconds before Mike for some reason thought I'd be a good fit and just, it was just a, after that, it was just a non-issue. It was just like, it was just, you know, there was no question about it, you know? And I still don't yeah, understand why. I don't why. remember any kind of audition or anything. <laughs> I think we just had to meet you and figure out if you were cool no, or not, you know? Yeah, I think I w we were just uh, sitting on the bed in some room and you were playing some records and just getting my feedback and uh, we took it from there. And you and, already liked, like you were in, into blues already, right? Yeah, well, I was, you know, at the time, I mean, if you'll remember in 12th grade English, the reason I started even going out was because the Answers, another local band, was playing Lucifer Sam by Pink Floyd. And uh, that was your hook to get me to actually go out to a show, <laughs> to see a band doing that live, you know? So I went out and, and one of those times after seeing the Answers once or twice, it was a show with the Howling Men. And that's the first time I ever saw Mike and the, the rest of the Crawdaddies. And I was just, that was my favorite band after that. Those guys were just so great, you know? Um, and Mike was, had black hair at the time. <laughs> that week. When I first saw Mike, he had black hair and a big medallion. Well, that's what I was going yeah. for, but, but uh, as soon as I dyed my head black, everybody thought I was Joey Ramone. <laughs> I, I, I looked a lot like Joey Ramone with my head black, which was not my plan. As much as I love Joey, I didn't want to look like him. So, but it took a few months to get that black out of my hair. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, who names the band? Where does the name come from, Telltale Hearts? Well, um, that, that idea was mine and um, it came from Edgar Allan Poe. And uh, I remember I was on the phone with uh, a friend of ours called Wendy Gibbler and uh, we were talking about the band and I was leafing through Edgar Allan Poe book and I said, how about the Telltale Hearts? And she said, that's actually pretty cool. And uh, then I suggested it to the other guys. And, and But it, I, right away, I knew that was a really cool name. You know, <laughs> and everybody's, you know, you didn't have to explain to anybody in the band who Edgar Allan Poe was, because everybody in the band was kind of like- Yeah, we were all Poe you fans. Know? So it was, a, it was perfect. So there was no- We were all Poe. There was no disagreement when that was suggested? Everybody agreed to that? Yeah, I mean, I don't remember us ever even considering another another name. I mean, it just it fit perfectly, and it's it, you know, in retrospect, it's kind of surprising that um, there there weren't already bands called the Telltale Hearts. So, I mean, I, I think it's such a great name. Yeah, yeah. There are now. Yeah, it, there are now. There are a few. But. Are there? Oh. <laughs> there, I, I've seen a couple I online. Saw one yeah. on yeah from England somewhere, and they weren't anything good. <laughs> well, we're talking about the good version of the Telltale Hearts. We wanted to talk about your guys' debut album that I have in my hands, signed by Eric and Mike, I think at a, at a Loom show.
So the album came out in 1984 on Vox Records, and we're real curious how you guys came to be part of the Vox label. We had a relationship with Greg Shaw from the beginning. As I mentioned, it was Greg who sent my letter to Ron that got me into the Crawdads. And, and uh, Greg was always super encouraging to every band that had good taste. So when I left the Crawdaddies, you know, Greg was like, well, let me know what you do next. And uh, he, he basically wanted to sign any band that was that could play, that was playing that kind of music. So uh, he signed us, he signed a, a Grave Digger Five, and, and then um, the Miracle Workers from Portland. And, in fact, and, he, and he must have booked a block of studio time at the studio up in LA, because the, the uh, Grave Digger Five recorded their album the week before us, then it was us, and then the Miracle Workers came in right after us. I mean, I think we each had two days or something like that, or maybe another day to mix. So Greg was just cranking out albums. Um, all, all. Yeah, I was, try I was trying to remember the other day, because didn't we go up and record, uh, uh, did we record a, a something for, for uh, the Battle of the Garage Bands first? I want everyone to listen. I want everyone to listen. was kind of the our you know proving ourselves to Greg. Greg, Greg um, at the time he Greg was always waiting for the next teenage music movement you know or young youth music movement and, and, and when punk kind of as David explained you know kind of sputtered and turned into hardcore he lost interest in punk he thought maybe power pop would be the next thing that, that wasn't really happening uh, and then he sort of saw that there was a movement of bands playing sort of 60s garage and psychedelic music. And he put out the first Battle of the Garages album in 1981. And from that, that was the beginning of the whole scene, really. And that had the uh, one track by the Crawdaddies on it. And then he wanted to do a second one. He wanted to do a series of them. And at that point, the Telltale Hearts had formed. So, you know, he more or less said, we were a shoe in to be on that album, you know. We just had to prove ourselves and record one song that was decent, which was easy enough. But so from that, nice. I don't know when that was, that was probably 83 and then 84, we recorded the, the debut album. And you know, right away he wanted a full album. Uh, he didn't want to mess around with singles. And um, 
that was to I, I found out later that was Greg Shaw's uh, business model because he yeah. a friend of mine was starting a label uh, not long after that and and uh, Greg said oh it's really simple uh, you just press a thousand copies of the album and you don't pay the band huh. <laughs> <laughs> so that's kind of how it went. Uh, but that was that was fine with us we we, we were just happy to you know have a record deal we we didn't think that we were going to make money off of it you know. I mean, how? <laughs> it was fun to be in the studio. It's what? It was fun to like go to the studio and, you know, that was like a new experience for me to actually be in a recording studio and do that. Yeah, I think right. I've done some uh, recording with the Crawdaddies, but it was always in some amateur kind of setup. And, and this was my first time, I think all of us, in a sort of professional studio. And we were a little out of our depth, I think. Right, I remember being a little, little intimidated. Um, particularly in the way that way we envisioned recording uh, recording uh, an album we'd go in and set up like like we did in our practice studio and they would put a couple mics in front of us and we would play our songs um, but uh, we, you know we were in a big studio and they separated everything and and uh, that was foreign to us yeah we didn't know much there was a few things we knew like they wanted to put Bill's keyboard direct into the board and we knew that was that was not good we wanted the sound of the amplifier but they said, well, let's do, you know, we'll put one line in the board and then we'll have also have a microphone on the amplifier. And then we had to fight during the mix to have the amplifier track, which was the one that sounded great rather than the one that sounded like really thin. And yeah, like a Casio, which, which ended up being used on, on, on some of the mixes. See, I, I put a lot of trust in Greg because I had so much respect for him, but he was really a hands-off kind of producer. I know he'd worked with the Flaming Groovies, but... You know, you know, later I learned he was just kind of sitting there while Dave Edmonds did all the work, you know. So we, we learned soon that, that Greg really didn't know that much about production and he kind of left it to the engineer and we just tried to figure out as best we can how to make it sound good. But uh, we were a little disappointed at the time. It was difficult to get a good sound in there. It really was. Yeah. Well, you remember uh, Mike, Mike and I went, um, went, we got the original tapes and we had, when we, we did the CD uh, compilation and that was about 93, 94, something like that. And we went back and got the original tapes and um, uh, we, we had to, they had to be baked first. Um, but I remember just the record, everything was, 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 was um, pretty strangely recorded. You remember that, Mike? I mean, I remember just like the, uh, one of the things I remember about that clearly is like, I was, I didn't know what I was doing in the studio and I was, I was playing the maracas right next to my face while I was singing. Um, and now, of course, you, you do it separately yeah. or whatever, but you know, that was one of the things we, we, there wasn't much we could do. We were trying to do it like we did it live, but, but they sucked all the stuff out of the room, you know. But I think when Ray and I went and remixed it, we managed to make it sound quite a, quite a bit better. There was some good yeah. stuff on the tracks. It was just badly thought out. I mean, in the, you know, ultimately at, at this point, you know, I, I think it stands up fine. You know, the songs were good uh, and people like it. So, I, you know, <laughs> I, I, I always kind of laugh at, you know, bands bitching about the mix on their album from all those years ago, you know, <laughs> you know, like, uh, you know, Iggy's still bitching about the mix on Raw Power, you know, it's, that's still the best mix. Well, yeah, it's funny too, because, because um, they did a, they did a remixed Raw Power, which I can't stand. I heard, heard it several years later. Yeah, he thought, did it, yeah. It's good. <laughs> I it's pretty good, but it's no Raw Power, you know. Yeah, there you go. 
Well, I wanted to back up a little bit and talk about how the songs were written. Uh, so even before you guys recorded it, and of the 12 songs that are on the album, seven of them are originals. So Ray, you wrote uh, the lead off track, Crawling Back to Me and Come and Gone uh, from side two. And then She's Not What Love Is For, You're a Dirty Liar, Forever Alone, and the album Closer Won't Need Yours. So that was Mike and Bill doing a co-write on that. And then finally, Losing Myself. Losing myself in a crowd scene, like thing to do. But now the faces that I see remind me of you. If I knew what I wanted, then I'd have it, that's for sure. But that's the only thing I'm sure of, because I can't stand this no more. And Eric, I understand, wrote that. So, how would you get? How did you guys bring songs to the band, and how how did these co-writes happen? Well, uh, Bill and I lived together. We were roommates, so it was logical that we would write write together. You know, so and we were always Mike and I were always pissed off about something. Um, <laughs> and actually, maybe it was more me. Um, so the the words were usually reflecting some youthful angst about a girl because yeah. um, that's just like that was who what who we were and what we were going through at that time and then it became my my job to you know uh to be sort of the Cyrano and Bergerac character I got to yell at those <laughs> girlfriends from the from the stage that's right because <laughs> I was too cowardly to say it myself so I hid behind Ray <laughs> Um, I, I wrote primarily, I, you know, I, I think, I want to say Crawling Back to Me was one of the first songs I'd, I'd ever written. And, you know, and you, you can go back and look at those and you, you can almost break down the origins. I mean, they were all really derivative songs. Um, but I think we, the, the magic was in the way that we, we put them together, you know, put, put the pieces together. Um, I can go back and listen to one of, one of my favorite songs that we ever recorded was um, it's not me, which is on the was on the EP, and that's Bill. I think you wrote that one by yourself. I think, right? Yeah, it's I You know, you can hear some bits and pieces of, of songs that you like, but the the the, uh, the sum factor is is, is brilliant. Yeah, so, the, I, I told you that, Bill. I really like that. One. The drums are great, and that and I love the way the guitar and the harmonica kind of play off each other. Um, there, there was uh, I think we 
I don't know if, if this is natural, but during that time when you and I lived together, Mike, that was just a normal thing, I think, for us is we just constantly had music in our heads. And so we would try to write it down and then you were there and I was there. So you'd kind of like play a lick or maybe I'd play something on the keyboard and we kind of just fumble together and finally get a melody out of it and then come up with some words that were suitably pissed off that rhymed occasionally. <laughs> um, it seemed very simple, but I remember writing songs like in fourth grade, you know, when I was just uh, trying to learn how to play music and they were horrible, but they were always very much inspired by another song that I tried to sort of model after. So I think a lot of the Telltale Hearts had lots of mixed influence songs um, and you couldn't really pinpoint a single artist that we were influenced by. It was a yeah. pretty good blend. I think all, all bands start off doing that, you know, and, 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 and I think we should, what we should, what I think is important is that there was, as you said, seven out of the 12 songs were original. And that was very much what we decided to do as a band it's that we didn't want to make an album of covers because we saw other bands doing that. Other bands would play sets that were all covers of things off Pebbles albums. And we were like, well, what would be the point of, you know, doing that? What would be the point of, you know, doing Voices Green and Purple and, you know, one, two, five, you know? So we, we wanted to do something original because we wanted to have an album that, you know, reflected us, that would, that would sound like us if it wasn't like some kind of jukebox or something. And then the covers we did do, they were songs that nobody else really knew about at that time. No other bands were doing them, nobody knew about them, and they were they were telling people something about who we were, you know? Right. Yeah, I think that's a, that's an important point. I mean, we, we really did carefully choose the the uh, the covers for that, that first album. You'll notice there are two Outsiders, two Q65, and a Pretty Things. That's, yeah. you know, so if you, you, you kind of take a look at what we were all about at the time, that's it right there. And then, and then, you know, you can maybe add in the seeds. Yeah. Add, yeah. Add seeds in there and a couple of other. Maybe a little chocolate watch band. Yeah. yeah. You know, we knew by putting a, a, like a, we did a pretty thing song, but it was a really kind of obscure B-side. <laughs> and we knew that we loved the song and we thought we did a pretty good version of it, but it was because we knew that some kid in a record shop that, got it would see oh my god they do pretty things me needing you you know i'm gonna buy the album because i knew that, that if i would have seen a band that would have done that song i would have bought the album instantly or you know an outsider's song or whatever but you know what i'd like to add that just before we made that album ray ray you were talking about how you know we were recording ourselves in the practice studio and to me those are sort of some of my favorite days maybe my favorite days for the band because we had this space in downtown San Diego in the old sort of warehouse slash red light district. It was just a really seedy part of downtown at the time. <clears throat> and we had a storefront uh, that we were using as our practice space and this really interesting guy named Steve Epineter. I don't want to go too much into it, but Steve was this, this incredible character who liked our band. He was an older guy and, and he lived in that, that storefront and he let us leave our equipment in there and we'd go in there and practice all the time and we we recorded i think on like a two-track reel to reel or something a recording that has some of those early demos of the band and i love that most of all yeah exactly wait till cracking you up was awesome bill wait till you hear the the version of cracking up 
on this lot on this tape that we just uncovered. So really, yeah, there was a videotape. This guy Mike Mahoney taped us playing live at the Music Machine on Pico Boulevard, in oh, LA, yeah. in 1984, June of 1984. He did a wow. tape. He gave me that tape way back then, and then it disappeared after only a couple of years. And I don't think anybody else had a copy of it. And um, I've been bugging that guy Mike Mahoney for it for uh, annually every year for the last 32 years. I think I always send him. Oh my I send him a message and email every year. And ask him about it. What the hell took him so long? He, he never came through. He never came through. He <laughs> said he said he's always said like, oh well, it might be in my parents' house, and then it became like I don't even know if it exists anymore. So I had given up on it. But then, but the version that was my copy, that VHS tape, which had been stolen from me, I didn't never know where it went, turned up recently, like about two weeks ago, Bill. <laughs> Just showed up two weeks ago. Uh, it, Showed up where? Like in the mail? Ahmad had it. <laughs> no. Yeah. Get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> a scooter shop. Like to, posted on Facebook. Look what I found. This is videotape that David was no like, "That's way. It's stolen from my house." Oh my god. <laughs> so, so oh, I. That's hilarious. He, he and that guy started dragging his te heels. He wasn't. He wasn't going to give it up. So I had to go up there and give him some money and get it. And I got it. Did you really? Yeah. Yeah. No, I got it. And then I um, I uh, got it transferred. The digital transfer, I just picked up an hour before this meeting, and it's currently oh my God. like uploading to Dropbox for you guys. But I already watched it, and it looks and sounds, I mean, amazing. The, the quality is perfect. Nobody's played that really? thing since I it remember was, seeing a bad quality version of it many, many years ago, like just, but just a couple songs. So, is that with all the sparkly stuff behind us? Yeah, that like, right, wow, right. And, and that made it even more blurry and VHS looking. No, it, well, it was so... so I mean, it looks like a VHS, Mike, but it looks way better than you remember. I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm sure mine was a copy of a copy of a copy or something like that. Could, could be. Yeah, I, yeah. probably cleaned it well, up. Well, it's, it's in great shape, and it sounds a lot like the Studio 517 recordings. I mean, you would even think it was that. That's what you were listening to. The quality is so good. Wow. wow. So, so, yeah, so what, what Dave's talking about, really, was the... Uh, I'm, I'm thinking that, that, you know, it would have been within the first couple of months of us starting, we, we found this... Uh, this practice space downtown through, I believe uh, Steve Eponator had taken some crotty photos, I believe. Yeah, that's right. Um, and that's, that was our connection. But that became our, our home base. We, uh, we practiced there um, and we ended up uh, putting on shows there. Uh, yeah, for like yeah, two bucks. I think we did play the night before. Two bucks, uh, it was all ages. And that, that was really kind of how, our, how our, our little scene began to grow. Um, and what was really cool about that is that there were, you know, there were punks, there were mods, there were like heavy metal kids, goth kids, it, just disaffected youth looking for something to do on a, on a Friday night uh, <laughs> for two bucks, you know? Can't beat that. And uh, so, yeah, then, then, yep. yeah. And so we, there, so that was a, that was a pretty uh, legendary, legendary venue. Um, not long after we, um, so we recorded the a series of demos and, um, some of your listeners might uh, know that uh, Munster Records in Spain put out a put out an EP a, a couple of years back that that had some of those songs on it. We wanted to we wanted to uh, there That's it is. It. Yeah. We wanted to make sure we wanted to make sure that that, that people heard them because re-listening to them i think that's some of the best stuff that we we, we did um and then uh, about the same time um and there is a, a video that's been uploaded to to youtube we uh 
we filmed for cable television a, a, a video of ourselves lip syncing to uh, to oh, yes. the song. So um, I think uh, it's um, Cry, I think is the, is Cry? No, it's Hey Tiger. Hey Tiger, that's uh, the that's video. <laughs> Have you seen that, Bill? Yeah, the public TV one with yeah. um, Audrea interviewing us. Uh -huh. No, no, that's a good. No, not that one. No, no, not that one. That's that's what's happening. So I'll I'll get you a link. This is um, this this was recorded in '84, um, and it was recorded out in um, La Mesa, I think. We went to some studio at six o'clock in the morning, and and lip synced uh -huh. to uh, to uh, to our demo tape. Yeah, I was probably already drunk, so I don't remember. But <laughs> still drunk. I remember you telling the interviewer that you were born in a flower garden, so it's quite possible. It is possible. Jeff and I really wanted to know, uh, I, before we move forward, about the five covers. Who brought it to the band? Or did each of you bring one, and then it was just kind of a, all right, yeah, those are the five? No, I mean, I, I, I would say um, certainly at, at, at this point, um, from the beginning and throughout most of the, the band, um, Mike brought us a lot of a lot of new sounds. You know, um, I, I don't remember Mike how you started getting into the D Dutch R and B bands, um, but um, you know, Mike Mike would would kind of share them with us, and then we we became almost like evangelists. You know, we wanted we wanted everybody to hear. Uh, we wanted everybody to know about them. Yeah, so, it was a bit like with the it was a bit like when the Stones used to you know talk about turning people on to like Howlin' Wolf and Muddy Waters. We were trying to turn people on to, you know, Q65 and, and uh, you know, The Outsiders and, you know, all those bands we used to cover, you know. It was very important, you know. I mean, you know, for me, I thought that was the best music. That was the peak of music. It was the most exciting stuff. And, and I thought if people just heard that music, you know, they would be converted because it was, impossible not to like but, but i think i think uh you know the last 40 years or so has really kind of shown that to be true um because mike through not only through through the the, the records that we made etc but certainly through uh mike's musical projects and through his magazine ugly things i mean that that gospel has been spread worldwide i mean there are scenes that popped up all over the world that never would have uh never would have seen the light of day had it not been for ugly things and for right. you know i think for the telltale hearts as well yeah that that's certainly that's the case for me you guys turned me on to those bands so <laughs> i thank you guys for that so uh, so we wanted to talk about this record next so 1985 you guys released on vox records the now sound of the telltale hearts
and um, I don't know if it's considered an EP or a mini LP, but a six song record. And on this one, the band has a new producer. So you've got Mark Neal on here and the engineer is Dave Doyle. And we know that the debut was recorded at Silvery Moon, which I know Greg, brought, uh, Greg Shaw brought a lot of his Vox bands to that studio, we understand. But I'm guessing that this one wasn't recorded at Silver Moon. Oh. Do you have a new producer? Delzura, right? Yeah, I mean, after the experience with the first album, you know, we wanted to get get it right. And uh, we knew Mark and Dave a, a little bit because they played with the Unknowns. Um, and, they, and they had a studio which was out in Delzura. And um, so I think we went and visited the studio and everything was completely... 1963, you know, the, the ashtrays, you know, every detail. And we're like, this, this is the place for us, you know. If you're not from San Diego, Delzura is the sticks, man. It is like way out in East like Santee. Yeah, it's out in the, it's, it's in the mountains, you know. So you really, it's, it's like this, this shack in the middle of the, of nowhere. And then you open it up and it's like chess studios. Not everybody could record that, you know, they didn't advertise. You couldn't just call up and book time. You almost sort of had to pass an audition with Mark to meet his level of acceptance. Otherwise, he wouldn't record you. And you had to bring a gift of Carl Budding lunch meat. <laughs> <laughs> his favorite. And Mark Neal went yeah, on. To, he went on to produce like what, like the Black Keys and all kinds. Oh yeah, of yeah. I mean, he, he got nominated yeah, for a Grammy for that. I think. Mus Muscle Shoals Studio, I think. But anyway, yeah. So it was uh, three tracks, and I, I think that the um, the genius of Mark Neal was what, in 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 contrast with Silvery Moon. Silvery Moon, we do a take, and they go, okay, cool. Next, um, Mark Neal would make us work. You know, he'd make us work for it. He, and I, I really think he did a great job of pulling out uh, some of the best guitar solos out of Eric, some of my best vocals, uh, uh, Mike and, and Bill and David's playing. I think he did a really great job with that. Plus he had a real good ear for the, he had a really good ear for the, for the sound that we, that we wanted. Yeah. So I think we were all very much pleased with that EP. And I wonder why we didn't record more songs at that time. I, I wonder why we put out an EP. I think, as yeah, I think we, we probably should have waited and, and written a few more, but I, I think we wanted to kind of erase the previous album and get something else out that was more representative, probably. That uh, sounds about right. It was either that or maybe Eric was already considering leaving. I don't know. I don't really remember. I don't think so. I don't think at that no, time. Um, no, but you know, back to Mark's studio, too, besides the fact that it was all old equipment after the experience at Silvery Moon, it's like the second, I remember the second we heard Bill's harmonica in the microphone, we were like, okay, we don't need to do anything. This is exactly the sound that we want. Yeah. Uh, we didn't even have to work yeah, at all. He had, a, he, had a, he had an echo chamber, you know, and, and he just, and the, all the best microphones. So, and, the, and I remember the drum sound too. Like, this is how the drums yeah. sound. And whereas at Silvery Moon, you know, they didn't sound like David's drums, you know? Yeah, it was a no-brainer. As soon as we stepped in, it was like, oh, this is easy now, you know? And Mike, uh, did, did Mark have a, a Leslie speaker? He, I think we didn't use that until later. I don't think we used that on the Telltale Hats. Yeah, I remember using it on the other the um, single. Maybe. I was thinking he had one there, but whatever, whatever the sound was, every instrument was exactly how we had envisioned 
it being. So after, I mean, when we were done with that album, I was so proud and excited that we finally captured really the live sound of the Telltale Hearts. Yeah, yeah I mean, Mux, you know, he really is a genius. And, and you know, the, the genius of it was, it meant that we didn't have to be thinking about how things were gonna be sounding on the tape. We could just focus on the performance, you know, which is how it should be. That's if you're the band, you know, you should just be focusing on your playing your part and playing together with the band, not wondering whether you were going to be getting the right tone on your bass guitar or whatever on the tape. Yeah. You, you knew yeah. Mark had that covered. You didn't have to worry about any of that. So you just wanted to, you know, play. I mean, the, the only complaint was that uh, he wouldn't let you drink in the studio, so we had to go outside. Uh, every time we wanted a beer, so. <laughs> but but that, but that was probably smart on his part. Oh yeah. Um, and if you you look at the song song uh, choices for the EP, also um, we've got uh, four originals, and then we had a had a Dutch cover and a downliner set cover. Yep. So again, once again, similar formula. Um, we wanted to showcase our original music, but also uh, kind of remind our fans where we came from and share new music with them as well. Excellent. I, I will say that the sound of this is very authentic, I feel like, to the sound of the of about 66, 67. It has that, not only what you guys are performing, but the production too, in my opinion. It just, even the look of the cover just has that. It just feels authentic to me. But one thing, uh, Ray, you were mentioning about the, the songs, that there's four originals and two covers on this one. One thing that always fascinates me as a wannabe musician is sequencing so i was real curious for the debut record and for the now sound how did you as a band come up with the sequencing or was that something that greg shaw did how did you guys work out the sequencing on these records oh, we definitely decided the sequence and i don't i don't remember you know we wouldn't ne never let anybody else make a decision like that um and i think we just probably you know probably just made different cassettes, you know, and circulated them. How about this? No, let's move these around. You know, I think we discussed it among the band. Right, you know, I, I remember, you know, I remember, you know, we had this this delusion we were gonna have a hit record at some point, you know, so we think really? like, the lead off of the piece would be our, our single, you know? So. Yeah. Back in those days, I think you, you created um, sort of a scene that started with the first song and ended with the last song, and you had to create a story in between. Yeah, and it had to be two sides, you know? You would listen to the whole story. Right, yeah, so you have, you have two acts, you know, you have act one, you want to start out strong and powerful, you want to end powerful, but you want to pace pace everything as well. Um, yeah. That's kind of a lost art, the, uh, you know, yeah. constructing an album. Um, it's not really it the same constructing a, a, you know, a Spotify playlist, but, you know. Um, yeah, I mean, I, rem I mean, I remember, I think there was never any question that Crawling Back to Me was going to be the opening song on the album, because I think that was yeah. the strongest song. We think we, we all knew that, that was some, a song that instantly grabbed you and sort of said what we were all yeah. about, you know? You know, if you didn't like that one, you probably weren't going to like the band, you know? So that's, you know, yeah. some people are only going to give, give you like half of the first song to decide, you know? So we thought that was, if they don't like that, then you know, screw them, you know, they're not going to like it. Else. Them, yeah. <laughs> um, Jeff and I had another question and that's about um, 1986. So from our understanding, that's the year when the band decides to call it quits 
and we were wondering mm -hmm. if you could let us know or share with our listeners is this just a natural evolution people are moving into different directions or what leads to this decision well i think i i definitely left first and i think it was a natural direction change for me it wasn't anything specific or or anything it, it just seemed right at the time whether it was or not i'm not sure but you know I, Sarah, do you remember when when about 86 oh, yeah. I, I i think we started playing with peter that summer of 86. yeah, mm -hmm. yeah and i think the band lasted probably till 87. the beginning of 87 is when the band completely split up I remember one live show on a green tiny stage at a Chinese restaurant in 1987, and I think that was our last show. That was a very weird one. Yeah, it was. It was. Um... You remember that? <laughs> yeah, I remember that. I remember. It's like playing at one of those uh, Japanese steakhouses. Instead of yeah. chopping vegetables, you know, you had the telltale hearts in the middle. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, that was a, that was a, that was our last. Yeah, but, I, and, the, and the puppet show was after us, and I think that's when we knew <laughs> that, that you know that the arc was heading down at that point. I, I mean, I think you know when you're young, that age, most bands only last like three to five years. You know, those first early bands, and then they either have to completely change the lineup or they break up altogether. So I think we kind of broke up at the right time. It, it just wasn't as fun anymore. It, by that point, everybody was kind of pulling in slightly different directions, and nobody was happy about it. And um... I mean, really, the the first I think the, the 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 big blow really I mean was was when Eric left because we weren't after that. We yeah we grabbed grabbed Peter and we had some good shows and I think we recorded a uh, I really liked the single we recorded. Yeah, it really wasn't it wasn't the Telltale Heart. Yeah, once you it change that the, one element, you know it's. You know, it's it, you lose something of the original magic. So even though Peter is like a fantastic guitarist and a great guy, he uh, just wasn't really a, a telltale heart. There's, there's no replacement for uh, the Bach or fuzz tome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, yeah, and and and, and uh, you know, Eric was such such an important important part of the sound. I mean, his, you, you hear Eric's guitar playing yeah. and you re recognize that yeah. guitar, the style and the sound instantly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and you okay. had a certain balance of personalities. And then when you take one of them out and put it in a new personality, the whole chemistry is thrown off the whole balance of, you know, characters and sound, it gets thrown out of balance and, and you never quite, you know, get right, get, get the balance back again. You kind of like you fall off the unicycle at that point, you know? It was like when the Eric was like when the construction worker left the village people. Yeah, right? After that, they just never quite never got really well. Eric kind of was the construction worker of the band. I <laughs> <laughs> was the Indian. <laughs> you guys have mentioned your live performances, and I want to say as a fan, I you guys were amazing live.
I had the great fortune of seeing you guys. I think I can remember three times seeing you. Once was a um, near SDSU. I think it could have been a frat house. And I, I think I helped you guys move your amps into the backyard. And it was crazy. Like people were going insane. Called the, yes. called the Peace yes. Resource yeah. Center. And I don't know, no, I don't remember how we became connected with the Peace oh, Resource Center. I remember. Center. He, he, he was a, it was a customer at the, uh, the coffee shop where I worked at. <laughs> oh, okay. He made his flyers there. And, and uh, so he asked if our band would play one of their events. And we played several of them. Yeah, so I remember us doing, I know we did, we did a, a benefit for the Mexico City earthquake, uh, earthquake victims once. And the rest were just kind of um, general, like anti-draft uh, uh, anti-draft benefits um, but yeah you remember correctly it was a it was a house and there was a pool outside so we were uh, there was there wasn't too much space between the band and the pool for the yeah. audience but they lined up there and I also remember us playing I, I don't know if it was because it was raining or whatever but I remember us playing inside the house once because there was a tree in the middle of the living room you guys remember that house the tree in the middle, because I, I just remember climbing up the tree and scraping all my forearms up and everything. Uh, yeah, that's the peace resource. I I remember that being a great show and another great show. And it was, I thought it was a weird double bill. But the second time I think that I saw you guys, um, I think it was December 21st, 1985, if I'm looking back at my notes right, at the North Park Lions Club, when you guys opened up for uh, Jesus oh, yeah, and Mary yeah. Chain. And it was real interesting. Because you guys brought the energy. I mean, everybody was into it, going crazy, dancing. And then Jesus and Mary Chain came on. I don't know if you guys talked to them backstage or whatever, but I don't know if it was their shtick or whatever, but they came on, didn't face the audience, looked away from the audience. At the end of their set, they dropped their instruments and walked off. It looked like, like they could care less about these Americans. But you guys just brought this energy level. And that place was going insane. Like, I was in the middle in the middle from the front to the back and in the in the middle of the stage and just everybody was going wild for your set but your live performances were always just incredible there was a there was a lot of publicity and a lot of hype about the jesus it was jesus and the mary chain or jesus and mary chain um i think they had formed about six months earlier in england and they were playing them on the radio locally here and uh it was a, it was a pretty good gig for us to land uh at the time um I remember, I just, frankly, I remember being really bored by them. I think most yeah. of us were out in the parking lot. Throughout, yeah, uh, I was out in the parking lot drinking beer the whole time, I think. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. they didn't have, yeah, it was interesting because you guys had this energy level that, well, all three times that I saw you were just crazy energy level. And then they came on, and I like Jesus and Mary Chain, but they looked like they were could care less about being there. I don't know if it was a shtick, but no energy whatsoever, like zero that. level energy. And you guys were like, you guys were like 110% energy just. Yeah, that might have been, I think that was part of their shtick. I know one of the, one of the, um, one of the guitarists turned completely around and faced his amp the whole, the whole set, I think. Exactly, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's yeah. funnily enough, uh, Chris Marstella, the guitarist in the Loons, that was the first time he saw the Telltale Hearts. He went there to see the Jesus and Mary chain. So he, he thought they were good too, but he, he, he uh, you know, was a one over by us that night. Uh, yeah, great live. Yeah, you guys were a great live performance band. The last time that I saw you guys was in '94 at the Casbah. Yeah, I think you guys did a six-show tour, and you were promoting the High Tide Big Noses and Pizza Faces compilation. So that was the compilation 
that Ray, you were talking about earlier that you and Mike put together, which is a fantastic compilation. We all, we all um, put that together. Yeah. Um, but what okay. the role Mike and I played was that we went up to LA and, and got the original tapes from Greg Shaw of the first album. And the idea was, okay, well, we're going to fix this now. You know, we're going to, we, we've been waiting 10 years to do this. And so we just remixed, uh, you know, uh, eight, six, six to eight songs from that. Um, but th that was a, that was a, uh, complete band effort. I remember we met, we met at my apartment over in, on first Avenue and we wrote out all the songs that we wanted to, that we wanted to go on there. You know, we wanted to be on the, on the, on the uh, CD and yeah, it was a full, full band, full band project. We also, the, the, uh, the liner notes were kind of written uh, in piece, piecemeal fashion. Uh, we each kind of contributed sections and then I think at the end Mike kind of hobbled them all together, translated them into English. <laughs> okay, we, Jeff and I have a question that um, it's a little out of, out of order, but we want to know. Uh, and this goes to all of you. Do you prefer live or playing in the studio? Oh, live. Uh, I mean, I think with the Telltale Hearts, uh, you know, the live shows was with the, my best memories of that band, for sure. Because, you know, the, the, even with, you know, every time in the studio, it, it was a bit more like work. I mean, we, I was happy with the, with the records, but live was always very special and trying to find that energy level. And, uh, you know, I mean, some nights were really, really great, you know, and, and that would, that's my best memory. It's, it's the best live show. It's like that one, you mentioned North Park Lions Club. That was, a, I remember that also being a really, really good show. Yes, they weren't always, but a lot of the time they were. What about that, uh, the, the wedding we played? Wasn't it a Mexican couple that got married? Oh, it was, yeah. What was that? Well, I think what I remember about that, that was in Whittier, and, and I think it was a, was it, did we get that through a, a friend of Tony Suarez, or Tony, anyway, anyway so a friend of a friend, wanted us to play a wedding. What I remember about that gig is that I had laryngitis, I, so I didn't sing a note during that song, I, I had a, an old guitar that I plugged in, and we just did, like, instrumental versions of our, of our, our songs, it was a really strange, strange afternoon. Yeah. Kind of forgotten that. But we did play, we did, we did play some, some strange some strange gigs. So Eric and Dave, same for you, live over Absolutely studio? live, yeah. Oh, and Dave? Oh, of course. I mean, without a doubt, the yeah. studio was yeah. terrifying for me. <laughs> live, live stages were terrifying too, but they were so fun. It was like jumping off a bridge. You just never knew what was going to happen. Yeah, there were some songs like playing at the river's edge or something where it was, it was like in, in my case i never knew if it was bill or eric who was going to destroy my drum set that <laughs> night. <laughs> or, or if your pedal um the shoelace was going to hold it together <laughs> yeah we were a little, it was a little different take on on the the pete townsend the pete townsend construction of instruments they would destroy david's instruments <laughs> Uh, well, well, they also destroyed their own. I remember Bill kicking in a few amps now and then. Oh, yeah. yeah. You remember Lurch shouting out at the end of Hey Tiger, I loved it. What <laughs> 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 were some of the other weird shows we played? Because, like, did we ever play? Remember on Interstate 8, there used to be that strip club forever that had a big go go dancer on top of it? Oh, yeah. Did we play in there once? Oh, I wish. <laughs> I felt like 
think we just went there. No, no, I feel like we had a gig there, a gig there when it was after it was the the, the strip bar. I don't know. I I tell you what, what gig I do remember it was really really weird. It it was a Los Angeles gig and it was a restaurant. Now I always have a problem playing. In, I don't like playing in the daytime, and I really don't like playing for people who are eating eating food and drinking coffee. I, yeah. I just it just it just seems so anti rock and roll to me. Yeah. But you guys remember it was a restaurant called Colors, and uh, and we were playing and you know in songs it was the clanking of clanking of forks and knives on plates and it, wow. it's really bizarre. See, we would have never played in places like that in 84, I don't think. And I think that's part of also why the band eventually had to, had to end because in the early days, it was, it was su the band was such a part of a, a movement, you know, it was part of a scene. It was part of this youth culture and it was like creating shows in the Greenwich Village West Basement. I mean, yeah, we played some legit clubs, but there was just something about, it always felt like people that liked that kind of music were coming to take over that space or something, you know, it had that kind of punk vibe to it. But then, yeah, when you start playing places like Colors. Yeah, it, it just takes us completely out of our element and, and there was, we didn't control the, it seemed like we controlled the stage anymore. Yeah. And I can't imagine we got paid anything. So it wasn't like we were banking yeah. money on those. I th we, pro we probably got dinner. <laughs> Yeah, that was probably part of the reason that we kind of withered on the vine, you know, is because we only played kind of in the local area. I mean, we did one tour of Missouri, you know, and I think we went up to San Francisco and Las Vegas, but, you know, we never did any big tours. We, we never left the country. Uh, we could have gone to Europe like all the other bands, but, but for one thing, I couldn't travel because I was... Uh, undocumented alien. So I held them back. <laughs> well, I wanted to talk about the compilation a little bit more. Uh, as I mentioned, the compilation is called High Tide, Big Noses, and Pizza Faces. And I imagine you guys got that from the Rolling Stones 1966 compilation, Big Hits, High Tide, and Greengrass. Yes. I believe that the liner notes say something to the effect that the title, the uh, came from the Pandora's Paula mm. Pierce. Is that correct? As, at least as far as the big noses and pizza faces. It wasn't. Is it wasn't correct? Paul. It was another. Another. I, I believe it was Gwen Khan. Yeah, she she had made an offhand remark to somebody like, "Oh yeah, the Telltale Hearts. That's just a bunch of boys with big noses and pizza faces." And that got back to us, and we thought that was great. So we, you know, we stored you know we stored that away for ten years before we got a chance to use it for something. I remember around that yeah. around that time, somebody sent us that anonymous letter. You remember that anonymous letter that that, that uh, called out each and every one of us. Um, I think they said something about uh, that I I was uh, like Mick Jagger with a monkey butt, and you know I mean. Each, do you remember that letter, Mike? I do remember that monkey butt line. I can't. I, I don't think I have that letter. <laughs> Who has it? I hope somebody does. I don't. I, I certainly don't. But it, yeah. Anyway, um, I I thought maybe that that had come. Yeah, from it sounds like a disgruntled fan. <laughs> Um, we did. We did get some some really great fan letters from around the world. Those yeah. were the gruntled fans. Most of our fans were gruntled. They were gruntled. They were disgruntled, gruntled. right? Um, <laughs> and um, you know, the Italian guys. It's been well. It's actually been been really really fun. You know, since that time. You know, when I've done a little bit of traveling and certainly the and then a social media, we've met some of the the, the people who uh, sent us fan letters when they were kids. And they went on to form bands. Um, I, I actually met Boy from Barcelona 
You remember Boys from <laughs> I met him. He's a great, great guy. He actually founded uh, Peniman Records in, 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 in Spain. Yeah, that was, that was to me, uh, that was one of the biggest, um, that, that was one of the biggest eye-openers for me, I think, because, you know, as Mike, Mike started earlier, I think, you know, you start a band and your ambition, I think, is to, hey, let's, you know, let's, let's play a really fun gig and, you know, your, your, your ambitions slightly, uh, slightly grow. Uh, you know, we were all excited about hearing ourselves on the radio and, and, and having an album released. Um, but, uh, Bomb had really great distribution. That's one thing that that's one thing that that uh, that, that record company had. You know, they may not have paid the bands very well, but their records got into these little record stores all over the world. So we started getting letters from from literally everywhere. What wow. um, what was a, the biggest thing for me? Because when I was a little kid, I didn't have a lot of friends, so I would just ride my bike all over. And one place I always ended up at was Tower Records down on Midway Drive. And I would just spend hours there thumbing through album covers. And I, I just fell in love with album art. And that's kind of how I got to know different <laughs> bands and learn about different bands. And then one day in the tees, there was the Telltale Hearts at Tower fucking Records, man. And wow. that was a big deal. Yeah, yeah. Did any of you remember hearing hearing us on the radio the first time? Like I, I hear I remember hearing us on on ninety one X and I just ninety one X yeah yeah like in the middle of the afternoon <laughs> yeah we thought for sure we were going to be huge. I heard us on Rodney on the Rock in in L A and that was a yeah because oh, yeah. Rodney played us a few times yeah. But yeah, there was some that, you know that was it was kind of a small scene spread out all over the world. You know, that's what it was. But everybody that was in it was very enthusiastic. You know, it was, and, and that kind of it's carried over to this day. You know, that that people that love that '60s music. You know, but back then it was all sending cassettes through the mail. You know, yeah. uh, you know, actual snail mail letters. It was it was pretty cool. Well, uh, Mike, I'm glad you, you mentioned that because Jeff and I had a question about some of the things that, uh, or at least some of the things that have happened since this mini tour for the compilation. So we know the band played in 2004 at the behest of uh, Nick Phillips, head of Australia's Corduroy Records, who released a couple of live albums of the band. Yeah. And uh, uh, we also know the band played a handful of songs at this 2004 performance again in September of 07 at the Casbah in San Diego and then at a street fair the next day. That was that was a full-fledged reunion that we did our, our last full-fledged reunion it was in 2007 um, all original five members and we did uh, we did a, uh, a show at the Casbah on Friday night and the Saturday night we played at the uh, Adams Avenue Street there. Yeah. The, the, the gig you mentioned before that wasn't really a, a reunion gig. In fact, um, a friend of ours who, who um, uh, discovered us, he and an Australian friend of ours, he, he and a, a friend were kind of hitchhiking across the, the U.S. and they ended up, Dave will tell the story, he ended up meeting, meeting David in, in, um, in Los Angeles um, and, and, and ended up hanging out with us for, for several months. But he was in town um, in 2004, I guess it was, and last minute kind of called us, called Mike up, and and you know Mike managed to get 
uh, four of the five of us, Bill was out of town. And uh, yeah, it was, we, we made fools of ourselves at, at, uh, <laughs> at, um, Kensington Club. The Kensington. Yeah, we first met, we first met Nick Phillips in 1984 with a bunch of the Australian guys that were traveling the country. And, um, they became, they kind of, you know, they kind of became like really, really good friends and fans of the band. And, uh, you know, still to this day, really good friends with, with Nick. Um, but yeah, um, so we, that's why we did that. And with no rehearsal, got up and did a couple songs. Because it's Nick, you know, he was our most ardent fan. And, um, and those live albums he put out, you know, which was some recordings that we'd made, I think, on a cassette uh, when we went to Missouri in 1985. And uh, he heard the tapes and he wanted to put out not one, but two live albums, like volumes one and two. I remember saying, what are we, John Coltrane or something? You know? <laughs> Volume two has a has a, a cartoon rendering of us as the Simpsons on the cover, which yeah. And I guess I guess the connection is that we it was live in Springfield. Springfield. Um, yeah, that was a good that was a good inspired idea for the album cover. <laughs> but yeah, I mean he, the fact that he would put out those two live albums from a ropey cassette shows you how dedicated he was to the band. And uh, it was it was things like that that I think you know made me realize that what we did was worthwhile because. Uh, you know, that was some real devotion, you know. And so yeah. it kind of validated that, you know, maybe we had something that other bands didn't, you know, at least, you know, at least for some people, you know, I'm not saying we're better than other bands, but, you know, we, we were captured. Some people really we're better than God as a thing or whatever it is. But... <laughs> well, then can we ask, is there any thought about possibly getting together, playing live again? Not during COVID-19 there, is it? Well, not, not now, but <laughs> I mean. We could do a virtual reunion show <laughs> from our bedroom. It's the closest we're gonna get it. We're doing it yeah, now, yeah, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> If, if we can play in that strip club <laughs> on Interstate 8. <laughs> I think that was a, a, another band, Dave. I don't recall that. I know. It was in some kind of, it was some performance, but it wasn't the Delta Hawk. <laughs> well, we wanted to make sure that our listeners know if there's a way to get any of the Telltale Hearts music. I own it on vinyl, and we talked uh, about the the record that was released in 2017, the from Munster Records and the, the seven inch EP. And Mike, I bought that from you through the Ugly Things um, website. Do you guys 
have any way for our listeners to get a hold of your music? I don't think there's anything left anymore. I know there's no more of those that that sold out really quickly. And then I asked Bump uh, the other day if they had just one copy. I had a guy contact me from Israel that wanted an autographed copy of the Now Sound Telltale Heart. So I contacted Bump. If you have one copy, you know you can sell me, and they, they said they don't even have any. So I think you're to get it now is eBay or Discogs. <laughs> yeah, they, um, the um, I think it would it would be kind of kind of fun to put together a vinyl compilation. You know, um, you know I always think about some of the cool ones that Rhino put out in the in the eighties and the Ava compilations. It might be kind of cool to do something like that. Sure. You know, it's all involved. Yeah. Um, but what's that? I might have to because nothing's available. You know, <laughs> if there's enough demand, I suppose. What about streaming or downloading? Is that Fair enough. Yeah, everybody's already uploaded every everything to YouTube anyway. So yeah. <laughs> um, but in but in terms of like you're talking about actually having something to, to hold in, in your hands. Yeah. Yeah, probably not. So Ray, I know that you put um you put out a best of CD that had songs that you've written with the Telltale Hearts and afterwards, are those still available? Because I know the songs that you- Yeah, there's just a couple, a couple of songs on there are. Um, I don't think this, this the CD's available. Yeah, I have I have um, several cartons in my storage unit. Um, <laughs> that's about it. Okay, all right. Uh, now we know who to, So speaking of that, if uh, any of our listeners would like to follow you on social media, are any of you on social media want to share uh, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm on I'm on Facebook. I, you know, Ray's on Facebook. Eric. <laughs> We're all on date. You know, we don't we don't log in very often. But he's social media. You see how organized we are. There's no records available. <laughs> we have no web page. We're maintaining the new speech. This is kind of indicative of, of our, our rocket to nowhere, Telltale Hearts, you know? I mean, I, I, and I, I'm only being partially facetious. It's just, it was just kind of a lack of, I think we would have done really well to have a kind of a whip cracking manager, you know, like the, like the Stones had or like, the, but we just, yeah, I mean. Well, you guys made some fantastic albums. You guys were fantastic live. And I, we, we, we touched a little bit about ugly things and I definitely wanted to, reiterate that to our listeners that Mike's been putting out this zine since I think 83 something like that early 80s mid 80s and it's it's probably the best zine that you can get right now so the ugly things magazine it's just incredible it's always it's stock filled it looks great there's great material in there Mike's been publishing this for the longest time Mike did you want to talk a little bit well, about yeah, that? That's always been something I did I started in 83 which I mean right before we formed the Delta Hearts you know I think I and one, you know, and Ray contributed and Bill to the first issues that we did. So uh, yeah, and it, I remember uh, lots of glue sticks in the apartment. Yeah. It was, it was, um, it, yeah, it was, it was actually at Carl's house, and um, yeah, I remember uh, several. Of, it was the summer of '83, and I remember several of us sitting around the, the big table uh, at Carl's yeah. house, stapling, stapling those first issues together. Uh, <laughs> and it's just, I mean, it's been, you know. It's really been a joy for me to see to to watch it take off and just to see the the just the, the level of writing and research and the popularity of the magazine now. You know, 
Yeah, I mean, that wasn't my plan to still be doing it 37 years later, but. It turned out to be a nice little little career though, you know? I mean, it's pretty. Yeah, but, it, but it turned out to be what I love doing the most. And if you can make, you know, you can pay your bills doing what you love doing most, you know, then, uh, you know, you kind of cracked it, you know? So I'm happy about that. And you know, I still have that attitude that I want to turn people on to that music, you know? What are the what are the really fun parts about being involved with Mike and and ugly things in those days was um, you know getting to to uh, track down and meet meet our heroes you know um, and Mike's done Mike is out I mean I'm, I'm amazed Mike I think you is there anybody that you haven't met that you're still hoping to who's alive of course who's who you're still hoping to uh, to meet because I mean. Once you once you meet meet uh, Phil May and Dick Taylor, you know, I mean, it's it's pretty hard to well, you know, <laughs> it's pretty hard to top that. You know? Yeah, I mean, I'd like to meet Keith Richards, you know, Bob Dylan, but I, it's probably not going to happen. But you know, that I'd rather have met Dick Taylor and uh, Phil May. All right. Well, we asked for an hour from you guys. You mentioned meeting your heroes. You guys are definitely one of my heroes. Am amazing band. You guys put out amazing music. Uh, and I'm really thankful that you guys are here. We wanted to ask one last question before we go, and we'll do roundtable. We wanted to ask if you, for each one of you, your favorite song that you had to play live, of either a cover or your own. So, Ray, did you have a favorite that when you guys played live that you particularly liked to perform? Um, I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'm going to go with Crawling Back to Me. And I just, I just really liked playing that. We used to open our shows with that. And I did the way that, the, the way that each of the instruments came in separately, yeah. uh, one by one. It was always really fun. And, and it was a good way to start off, the, start off a, a gig with, with a, a lot of energy. Yeah. What about you, Mike? Um, well, there's a couple. It, it would have to be one of those ones where you just kind of, there was a little bit of improvisation involved and uh, anything could happen. So uh, At the River's Edge was one that, that was always, you know, I don't remember as ever playing a version of that where I wasn't thrilled the whole way through and the adrenaline was pumping. And the other one was uh, One You Listen by The Outsiders, where mm -hmm. Eric stepped on that first tone. And it was just, mm -hmm. you know, immediately the energy level was like through the roof and we used to end with that one a lot and it would just kind of usually end with guitars falling apart and amplifiers falling over and people falling off the stage like great memories of playing that song <laughs> what about you eric uh i would have to say at the river's edge uh was probably consistently the most fun to play and just like mike said it's just uh, it's undescribable, really. It, it just kind of took you away the whole time, and such a simple song to play, but so powerful at the same time. You know.
What about you, Dave? You know, uh, piggybacking on what Mike said about songs that like where people freaked out and where it was just like, you know, you, anything could happen is we, we often used to play that song, It Came To Me. Oh yeah, I almost said that one too, yeah. That one, I, I don't think we ever didn't have fun playing that. We opened with it sometimes as well, Yeah, I think. And uh, sometimes it would go on for a long time if it was, yeah. if it was sounding yeah. good or if we were having fun. And yeah, that was a fun song. And what about you, Bill? Well, I'm thinking I'm gonna have to go with At the River's Edge also. Um, it was just one of those songs that I, in part, I knew I wasn't gonna fuck it up. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there is a little bit of like selfishness and um, fear on sometimes when you just launch into a song Sometimes I'll hit the wrong notes, and uh, usually um, there will be someone in the audience to call me out on it. <laughs> but that's one song where no matter how much we had been drinking, it always seemed to come out perfect. <laughs> you know, you know, it's funny. I played because um, there's a I think I think there's a live version of that on the on the CD compilation. And I, yeah. I had the opportunity to meet and play that that version for uh, two or three of the original New Colony Six, and they they said we, they really liked our version of it. They just thought oh, we did. Wow, so, that's great. Wow. So that I feel like one thing that never happened is there was never a recording of one of those crazy shows. I mean, we played when we played in San Diego, and we had everybody that loved us out there. The shows would just have like you know so many screaming people and everybody freaking out and you just it was such an intense energy level and um we really fed off of that and that was never really captured i mean we at the time when we were playing those kind of shows we played this 1984 show and the, the lingerie show too that's on tape but in those places we're playing in la and we're kind of opening up i think playing fairly early and and you just don't have the audience there you, yeah you we're, know, not, we're, we're not on our home home turf you know um, there is a tape, I remember it, I, I spent the last 20 years looking for it, but it's, uh, we call it the Wabash Hall tape, but Steve, Steve Hill uh, recorded it. He's been looking in his garage for the last uh, 30 years for it, so hopefully oh, yeah. we did smoke rings by the Gantz on that, huh? Because that was a really great, that was like, I remember that being a great, great. Uh, I think I have that one. I remember we did Yoda Victor by Q65. Mm. Well, I remember and you can hear Ron Silver shouting, Ray, you're the vicar. <laughs> okay, so we, we we used to be in our very early days right after mike had left the, the crowdaddies uh oftentimes they'd show up uh, and heckle us from the side of the stage <laughs> remember those days i was terrified by that too because I, I had so much respect for ron and, and keith as as musicians and, and look over to your left and So Dave, you mentioned that you had the tape that you recently digitized. Will this be available yeah, where yeah. our listeners can check it out? Like Maybe an YouTube hour, or... like an hour before this call, I, I, I got <laughs> right. it. 
Yeah, I'm right. gonna, I, I think Ray, Ray, you'll probably post it on your page with all the Telltale Heart stuff. I'm yeah, hoping. we'll we'll do something with it. Maybe we'll maybe we'll um, maybe we'll do a, a live screening on Facebook and and uh, maybe we'll I do mean, something it, like that. You know, it's 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 really fun. It's much better than I remembered it, and I think very cool. Well, we'll definitely share that if it becomes available, but. I didn't want to take too much of your guys' time. Thank you so much, all of you guys. Amazing band. It's fun to have you guys here reunited, talking mm. about these old times. And again, thank you for the music and for the live shows. And thank you all for coming on Paisley Sage, Raspberry and Rhyme and talking about these days, the Telltale Hearts. I've been a fan for years. So thank yeah, you all so much. Hey, good to see you all, everybody. All right, thank you guys. Thanks, guys. All right, later. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Hey, good to see you, Bill, man. I'm glad you made it. The first, the first one gone. All right, thank you guys uh, so much. Good to see all you guys. All right. Bye <laughs> <laughs> bye. Soraya, what did you think about those guys? Well, first of all, how awesome is that? That. All of them showed up. Yeah, we didn't think we were going to get Bill. In fact, at the beginning, I said, we have no Bill here. And let me tell you, the last to arrive is the first guy that pulled out an instrument and started playing his harmonica. Yeah, I heard a mouth harp there for a bit. Mouth harp, thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah, which I th I'm all, wait, are we going to have a super duper live performance? I was expecting everybody else. I expected Ray to bring out some maracas. <laughs> Yeah. But um look this is a this uh I mean we know from the first listen I really like this band I like the sound of this band so I'm newer to the Telltale Hearts um but you know it looks like they what it sounded like to me was there's a real synergy with this group of five yeah and you know and when they were talking about playing live and when you started talking about it i could imagine myself and the energy you know the of playing live i can already picture how this band looked that's why i'm i'm dying to hear this tape that that dave said he's uploading right because um you know while i can't you know transport back in time i can definitely have this tape and kind of have an idea of what they sounded like live and, you know, kind of experience it with uh, a little bit of time in between, but what a great band. Yeah. Yeah. Really a great band. And I really liked um, when they were talking about, you mentioned like the chemistry and I thought they did a great job of talking about that with Eric leaving how not only the music, but just, just the chemistry of a band being together. I thought that was, I mean, they put it perfectly the way that they described it. It's just, it's just not the same. But they had this chemistry for these few years that were just there was nothing like it in San Diego. And and they're totally right. Like when you would go to these shows, people were into it. Like I mean, it was a a party. Like just dancing, screaming, singing. It was it was a scene. You know, we talk about the Paisley Underground being a scene. There was this definite scene, and there would be people in day glow. Uh, mini skirts and I mean it was just that it was it was just a thing you know and and the Telltale Hearts were a big part of that um, and 
what the shows that I went to that was just, it was just incredible to see the energy and they talked about feeding up the energy off of the crowd I think it was definitely mutual because they would get going and everybody would just start start going I mean the just the energy of the band the energy of the audience especially with that show where they opened for Jesus and Mary Chain which to me I it felt like it was a big deal because I remember Jesus and Mary Chain being played on the radio and um I I was a fan of Telltale Hearts at the time so I was like wow this is a great double bill and they just came in just this energy level that the Telltale Hearts played was just off the off the roof I mean they were just it was just incredible and just the whole audience was just just going crazy and yeah it what a great band two things that I found really interesting one you know you and I have talked often about the role that Rodney plays in kind of helping expose people to new bands and kind of fresh sounding bands but one of the things I found interesting was something that Mike and Ray mentioned about how they wanted to you know they kind of served that same role where okay if you're going to listen to the Telltale Hearts you're going to know where our band kind of what influences our band and that you know Ray said you know we wanted to be um he 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 said a different word like it's not preachers but we wanted to evangelize. share the word we wanted to evangelize by by turning people on to the bands that they like the pretty things in the two dutch bands um q q uh, 65 and um and the outsiders you know so I'm like, you know, I love this idea of a band kind of saying, hey, don't just listen to us. We kind of want to turn you on to some other things that inform our music and kind of help you begin to kind of create this bigger picture of music. I thought that, I found that fascinating. I mean, in truth, all bands do that, right? If you like us, know, where, know our source, right? It, it's here, 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 here. But I, I I like the way that Ray and Mike put it, you know, in 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 the way that they discussed it. Uh, yeah. And um, you know, you just you know, two two albums, and you know this EP and this other EP, you know, through Monster Records, and you know, you just go. Where are those tapes? Yeah. <laughs> Give us more. Yeah. 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 <laughs> But, um, but you know, and then, you know, it's just, it's a, it's a little, not sad, but, um, you just kind of go, damn, I wish I didn't have to go to eBay and Discogs. I wish, you know, I could, you know, just get it however I want to get it. But, you know, I get it too. I understand, you know, yeah. you know, okay. You know, if Bomp Records only had, you know, didn't even have one copy of an of a vinyl album, but I take the hope that Ray offered is like, well, maybe a vinyl. Well, yeah, I crowd crowdfund yep, that exactly, exactly. Hell yeah. yeah, Jeff. What's your favorite Telltale Heart song that they played live? Probably "Crawling Back to Me." That. They, you could tell when they played that one that they were all into it and 
Ray grabbing those maracas and just going to town and they were wild men on stage. So yeah, that's probably my favorite. But really, I mean, honestly, when they played live, there wasn't a bad song. It, they, they were just all, they were just all great. And how many bands can you say that about? Where, hey, when they did a live set, there wasn't a bum song in the yeah. set. You know, it's not every band, but I'm glad that, you know, and I think they all said it too. The songs are solid and, um, you know, there's good, there's good music there. And I liked hearing them talk about yeah. it. Like I didn't, I didn't get a vibe that people were like, you know, mm. I, I, they talked with joy yeah, about it. Yeah, every single one of them sounds like that they look back on that time favorably. Genuine. Yep. Genuine. Yeah. So next up, we have our last in our mini series of Vox recording artists, and we'll be talking to a few of the guys from the band The Steps. S -E oh yeah. So that ought to be fun too. So I'm I think that's going to be great. This has been fun, and I've really enjoyed talking more in depth about these bands. You know, the Things First and Telltale Hearts now. So I don't know, gente. How do we are? Move on, Paisley people. Okay, David. So, so I'll I'll keep. Well, he, David's gone. All right. Are <laughs> right, you guys? Talk to you later. You've been stealing all my records and my clothes. 